Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gray Matter, the podcast from Greylock, where we share stories from company builders and business leaders. I'm Heather Mack, head of editorial at Greylock. Today, Greylock general partner Reed Hoffman interviews Stripe CEO and co-founder Patrick Collison. They discuss Stripe's early days and its evolution into one of the largest financial services startups in existence. They also talk about the leadership lessons Collison has learned along the way and how the company's micro-pessimism, macro-optimism viewpoint helps it stay focused throughout changing economic conditions. This interview was recorded in October 2022 as part of Gray Matter's iConversation speaker series. You can watch a video on our YouTube channel, and you can read a transcript of this discussion in the content section of our website, graylock.com blog. Both are linked in the show notes. And if you aren't already a subscriber to Gray Matter, you can sign up wherever you get your podcasts. So Patrick and I are beginning to make a habit of this. We were on stage last week at the Masters of Scale Summit, and we thought we would open this up. For those of you who didn't see last week's Master of Scale Summit, Patrick, who is a Master of Scale, identified himself as a hamster of scale. So. <laughs> For context, you're like, why is there a hamster here? Um, so. <laughs> I do think there's this thing that happens where, uh, I don't know, I guess we conflate uh, the size of the company with uh, having figured things out. And I don't know Laszlo Bach from Google who ran you know, HR and people there for a long time. And I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. Again, I, I don't know him. But I was very struck by you know, the book uh, that, that, that he wrote about Google culture, which I haven't read and, and maybe a wonderful book. But... Um, <laughs> well, you were struck by even physically. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, I mean, it's a book. I think the conceit of the book is like how to have a culture as good as Google, right? Yes. My kind of outside view on that is like step one to have a, a culture as good as Google is like number one have the business model that's the best business model in the world <laughs> and as good as Google it's like oh you know it really becomes much easier to have a good culture when you have the world's best business model uh, you know in, in a sort of similar vein uh, I think um, you know Stripe has been fortunate to be hauled and thrust along by all these like structural forces but I do not feel I'm much more comfortable being denoted a hamster of scale than anything beyond that. It's one of the key things to always think about kind of what is being an infinite learner and so Let's go to the deep part of where it is to be a entrepreneur, you know, kind of right now, which is, you know, this is, you know, wars, pandemics, markets, oh my, you know, after a 10 plus, you know, bull year market, all of a sudden we're in turbulent times. So the turbulent times is not just, you know, questions around, uh, okay, what does capital fundraise look like, but what does your customer flow look like? What are you seeing in Stripe, and what's the advice you would give entrepreneurs in these choppy waters? Well, I suppose the simple thing today, just you know, from, a, from a Stripe vantage point, uh, is I think uh, you know, rates have changed substantially, and as a consequence, I guess, in, in investor behavior has, uh, has changed a lot. And based on what we see in consumer spending, uh, and, and even business spending, that has not yet noticeably changed. Now, maybe there were kind of um, there, there are modeling effects where you know we thought that the pandemic pull forward was actually like some kind of structural new normal, and you know it turns out that actually no, it is better modeled as a pull forward. But you know we're, all the headlines you read about Europe, you know you're wondering like is there still an economy there? But uh, not only is it still standing, you know I'm a European, so fortunately uh, so, but um, uh, not only still still standing, but still growing, right? Uh, and so it just kind of as a very basic foundational matter, the economy seems to be in, in relatively good shape. You know, we, we just turned a phrase at Stripe, uh, you know, we want to be micro-pessimists and macro-optimists. And, you know, over the years, we're all trying to find ways to, to sort of inculcate that. And, you know, for example, for when we were moving offices, I told John that I wanted to get kind of signs from other companies that we could put up around the office, like National Semiconductor or 
uh, Atari or Osborne computer or Sun Microsystems or SGI and so on. This might be an old enough group that they actually recognize those <laughs> yeah. names. Well, just like, you know, Silicon Valley is famous for being, you know, such a productive and prodigious cradle for new technology companies, whereas, you know, in reality, it's the world's most densely populated graveyard. And, and I think there's, there's something so kind of gloriously macabre about the fact that, you know, the Facebook headquarters is not the Facebook headquarters, it's the Sun headquarters, right? Um, and, you know, the Googleplex is not the Googleplex, it's the SGIplex. And uh, you know, we're like crabs just scuttling along and uh, sneaking into each other's shells. But you know, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs you know, obviously don't know that. And so you know, we're all trying to find these structural things that we could do. To, J John didn't let me do the sign thing. Uh, he told me that I fundamentally misunderstood how to motivate humans. But, um, uh, <laughs> but um, we're trying to do things like this. You know, and so on the one hand, I think for many of the companies that are trading in public markets, and that, I don't know, perhaps that's, that's some folks here, I think, I mean, I can't speak to that, Stripe is not public. Uh, I think it's, it's super hard, and I don't want to sound oblivious to that. But when I look on a five to 10 year time horizon, it seems to me that the really great companies that the Valley built over the last 40 years went through these cycles. Like, you know, Andy Grove's famous literature was written after and about these melding periods. And so, again, I don't want to sound like, you know, some wizened expert here, you know, Stripe is going through this right now, but, you know, if I disassociate myself from Stripe and just kind of think as an observer sitting in 2032, I suspect that on average, this is very good for the Silicon Valley ecosystem. I actually agree, because it's actually partially the refocusing, uh, the question about how to navigate both difficult times and as well as the bull times is actually in fact, and if you can actually turn it to a strength, you get much more competitive differentiation for doing it. So let's dig a little bit more on... Uh, well, and, and you're forced to prioritize more, right? Yes. Uh, look, even I'm being forced to prioritize more, and it's terrible. In capital abundant times, you know, in, in, I guess, theater, it's, you know, you want to kind of a yes-and culture. Um, well, you know, in, in, when, when capital is abundant, you know, uh, your, your product developments can also be a yes-and culture. And uh, maybe to some extent that's good because you get to kind of have some, uh, you know, expansive ambition. But, you know, even because our customers are, on average, presumably going to be investing, on average, investing less over the next two years than, uh, you know, say they were before, Stripe is some kind of overall averaging uh, of that, we're thinking harder about, well, how do, we, how do we make sure that we're appropriately calibrating what we're doing relative to them, and we're making harder product trade-offs than we had to three years ago? Well, I actually think that's embedded in what you're saying is, you want to keep the same level of ambition, but it has to be through a focused aperture, rather than, okay, yes, we can do that too, and we can do that too, and we can do that too. Everything from Microsoft all the way down to the Series A has to get more focused. I think that's true, and I think there's something about, um, you know, so, so I started Stripe with my brother, John, and John reads earnings transcript in bed. And um, we, uh, we, used to, uh, we used to be roommates, um, and then we got girlfriends, and it was weird and all that. So, but, but for the first... Um, the and, fir and a wife now. But yes. And now a wife, yes. Um, for the first eight years of Stripe, we lived together. You know, I'd be shuffling along to brush my teeth or whatever, and he'd be yelling out. He'd be like, you'll never believe what they said in you know, this 10Q. I, as a teenager, um, was really into programming languages and Lisp and you know, all this kind of crazy stuff, but, but sort of at least aspired to being some kind of technologist. John was always super interested in business. You know, I was um, early in Stripe's history. I pitched John on, well, we should just make Stripe free uh, because, you know, we'd grow much faster. You know, John's like, interesting. You know, uh, can, you, can you explain the business model, you know, to, to, uh, embodied in that to me? And didn't really have one. Um, uh, but, I, but I, you know, from a, from a technologist's standpoint of purity, I thought that was much more compelling. 
I think there is some kind of yin and yang where I suspect most people in this room self-identify more as a technologist than a business person. And I think that's fine and good, and Silicon Valley is ultimately an ecosystem of technologists. Like, we're not New York, but I've certainly found over the years, and, and I've experienced it kind of myself, that I think it's very easy to become excessively technologist. And uh, I think part of what, you know, what's the difference between Steve Jobs 1 and Steve Jobs 2? I mean, you can kind of read that, you know, many ways. But I think Steve Jobs 2 was much more a business person than sort of the, uh, the first iteration. You know, maybe part of it's the need to focus and all the rest. But I think part of what lots of companies, and again, I, I include Stripe in this, is kind of the shift that we're having to go through is to not just acknowledge that kind of reluctantly, oh, okay, fine, you know, we're businesses, I guess. It's like to embrace the fact uh, that we're businesses and to uh, think about things like, you know, hurdle rates and, uh, and IRRs and, you know, all the rest as, uh, as part of the, you know, the, the fundamental raison d'etre. Yes, although it, maybe less IRRs and more the question of, similar to how we do compounding loops in growth curves and other things, is also the compounding loops in economics, right? It's how the, how the model comes together. Yes, and, and actually there's a book, and um, some of you probably have read it, um, it's, it's kind of famous in, in some small little um, sort of factions, um, uh, The Outsiders, Okay, I'm seeing some nods and smiles. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, you realize you can nerd out about data pipelines and you know the optimal way to do uh, to I don't know iterative data computation thing. You can nerd out about like the optimal way to be thinking about uh, return profiles, and the outsiders is I think the, the best single distillation of this. Yeah. So, and speaking of nerding out, we'll come back to why Lisp was the language that you selected in the things, but it's the best one. <laughs> okay, speaking of, we'll put the nerd out on the side. Micro-pessimism, macro-optimism. How does that cash out some? Like, what are some of the ways that you operate culturally, make decisions, plan for both ambition and downside? What's, what's some of the way that that cashes out? The tension I was trying to navigate is, I think there was just like a fundamental contradiction in the startup mindset and this cognitive dissonance where, on the one hand, you have to be incredibly attentive to your problems, right? Um, and to recognize the myriad ways in which your product totally sucks, right? You know, if you're oblivious to that, if you're kind of cheerfully whistling along, kind of Lego movie style, you know, everything is awesome. Um, I haven't actually seen the Lego movie, but, uh, but I heard that reference once. Um, uh, but um, if you're, you know... Just like the book for... Exactly, life, exactly, yes. yes, yeah. If you're oblivious to this stuff, you know, obviously reality is going to kind of give you a rude slap in the face uh, pretty quickly. I think the challenge and the tension is, you know, if we're, if we're kind of rubbing our own and kind of each other's, you know, faces in this, uh, you, you know, you, it's easy to become kind of, to have that drag in your spirits, right? And you simultaneously need, need to have this attitude that, okay, everything is terrible today, but we really have conviction that we can make it fantastic in, uh, in two years' time, in four years' time, in six years' time. And so this kind of uh, micro-pessimism, macro-optimism, part of what we're trying to do is to give people kind of acknowledge this tension and to give people structural permission to be extremely critical of that which exists today because I think otherwise people feel a bit, you know, tentative, like, I don't know, are they, are they criticizing my baby? Can they say that, like, our dashboard sucks or, you know, this, this API sucks or, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be. So shifting a little bit of our focus out some, uh, one point you said the internet is like the world's most vibrant city and the equilibrium has yet to be reached. Where are we on the evolution of the internet? Are we still very early days? Are there places where we need to be making corrections? 
at our event last week, uh, Masters of Scale, Hamsters of Scale, and Reed asked, uh, you know... We're um, going to rename it Hamsters <laughs> of Scale, you heard it here first. <laughs> Reed asked, uh, you know, about te technologies, you know, I'm excited about it, and obviously there's, you know, there's blockchain and, and, and uh, drones and AI and IoT and you know, all the things. And I said one of the things I'm really optimistic about um, and that you know, we see burgeoning around us uh, is vertical SaaS. This is the right audience for that comment. <laughs> I'm seeing at least one nod there. Great. So, like, every sector of the economy, not, not every single, but essentially every sector of the economy is still fundamentally analog, bespoke, handcrafted, and, like, not in the nice, kind of attractive handcrafted sense, but just, like, in the horrendously inefficient sense. You know, all the tools that we benefit from, you know, in, in kind of how we, how we do business... I think 97% of the rest of the economy has yet to, to, to benefit from. Um, you know, we did this video with this, uh, this company back in Ireland um, last week. Uh, they're called uh, Herdwatch. Uh, and it's literally SaaS software for farmers to manage their herds. Certainly today, you know, before Herdwatch uh, and the likes, you know, the, the, the cows are, you know, they're not being tracked in Google Sheets uh, and they're, you know, the cows are not on Slack. But there's tremendous efficiency gains. And, you know, not just in the, the logistics of the farm, but like how you do market making and matching and price discovery and, you know, like actually quite fundamental things. Now, uh, this Farm Logs, which is another company some of you might be familiar with, uh, they do um, sort of analysis of, uh, of, you know, crops and optimal distribution and, you know, pesticide use and trying to lower that and, and everything else, which is, you know, both healthy and cheap. You know, it turns out if you get into this, there's like a whole burgeoning ag tech sector and, you know, so many different ways in which software can be brought to bear. But again, we're, we're at a very, you know, early um, uh, point in this, uh, in this kind of distribution, you know, Carlota Perez um, sigmoid. I don't quite know how to quantify it, but, you know, if I had to just offer sort of a point estimate off the top of my head, and again, based on what we see from our customers and you know, all the different platforms we're going out trying to serve this, I think we're still in the single digits, right? Because it's, you know, it's all the different sectors in the U.S., but then, of course, it's not just the U.S. or, you know, Western Europe. You have to, you know, take stock of the full, uh, you know, global, uh, global extent of that, um, and, you know, so on a... On a, on a truly global basis, uh, I think we're barely off the starting blocks. The fact that Jerome Powell correctly, presumably, um, is you know, running the Paul Volcker playbook, I think should not in any way diminish our optimism about the uh, you know, five to 50-year prospects of the technologies being worked on. Yeah, no, I think that embodies the micro-pessimist, macro-optimist point from before. But just like on that, I feel like maybe I was too cavalier earlier. Like, um, I do not speak with any wisdom, so just... Consider, consider every answer, in fact, caveat with that, but, but especially in this one. Like, Stripe started in 2010 um, and, exactly, um, has benefited from the longest bull market in post-war U.S. economic history, right? And so, you know, we, we Stripe, have, have not uh, lived through hard times. But certainly from, you know, all the people I've spoken with, all the reading I've done, um, and, you know, just trying to get some sense for what might loom in our futures... We once hired someone from Amazon who was describing how um, after he started at Amazon, the stock plummeted by 70%. God, that, that must have been very painful. And he's like, actually, no, I could like, deal with that. What was very painful is when it then fell another 80%. <laughs> That's when I started to feel bad. And you know, that was Amazon, right? Um, uh, and obviously, these, you know, um, the, 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 these moments in these companies' histories don't, uh, don't tend to garner you know, as much attention when the kind of ex post facto you know, Bradstone books and so forth are written. Uh, and so, you know, much and all, as I'm extremely optimistic, I think that uh, these... Um, you've lived through them, I have not, but my sense is these cycles can be pretty intense. Uh, they're super intense, and one of the things that is important to recognize is that it's hitting everybody, and so your differential ability to swim through it, whether it's Amazon, PayPal, other things, is actually, in fact, the thing that gives you strength. 
I'm going to ask one more question and then open it up to the audience just to give some breadth. So, you know, Patrick is comfortable uh, expositing the hamster view on a wide variety of subjects, uh, which is good. So progress studies. Hmm. Why did you do the Atlantic article? What's the key thing? We just had a dinner on this earlier this week. What's the lens of why this is important? Because this is a room of people that will agree with progress studies, but just may not be familiar with it. I suspect everyone in this room is united in the belief that progress, and by progress I mean just like the overall broad, you know, society-wide betterment uh, that you know, we've all been beneficiaries of over the last, you know, at this point, several centuries, that it's, it's, it's possible and that it's important and that it's contingent, right? I mean, if you thought that we were just on some neat escalator ride to success, I mean, probably there'd be no need to start a company, you know, so, so someone else would do it. And so I think the kind of intrinsic uh, irreducible necessity of, you know, human action agency. In Ireland, where I grew up, people are very culturally aware of this uh, because in 19, as recently as 1960, Ireland was a destitute, autarkic, insular, Catholic theocracy. You know, my parents remember getting electricity and grew up in subsistence farms and, you know, all the things, like the big literature about, you know, Ireland being the sick man of Europe and, you know, what's going on and so forth. And Ireland, like, basically Ireland had bad ideas. You know, we thought that uh, being kind of closed off and, and walled off from other economies was a good idea. We thought that excluding women from the workforce was a good idea. We thought that uh, having the Catholic Church run our country was a good idea. There were, there were lots of things, right? And, and then a couple of people made the case successfully you know, that things should be changed, and Ireland had this explosive growth uh, over the course of essentially my childhood, uh, where it was just kind of starting around maybe 1985, uh, and then it kind of reached you know, the, the peak, I guess, you know, post the financial crisis, uh, in, uh, or excuse me, pre, uh, around 2008. So I, I grew up in the midst of this. But you know, as a result of that, the kind of sociology in Ireland was everyone really knew that it sucked to not have the right kind of development ideas and that, and that things can be so much better when you get the circumstances configured the right way. And then I came to the U.S. I guess the U.S. has been a beneficiary and kind of rich and developed for so long that there seems to be more of a... Of a some kind of shrug, right? And, and maybe even the opposite, where you worry about you know, too much development or too much growth or you know, what, what, what have you. And um, we're not at the end of history yet. We have not developed all the ideas we need. Uh, we, um, we have not cured most human disease. We have not solved climate change. Uh, you know, we have mental health. You know, all the, like, there's lots of problems. Uh, and so trying to find some common hashtag that could generalize beyond just, you know, uh, say, you know, we should have more startups. Like, what's the unifying sentiment there that's more expensive? And so we just, we just wrote an article where we were trying to propose a label for that. Yeah. And I recommend it. Um, I myself sometimes say, yes, I'm a progressive. I believe in progress. Other than vertical SaaS, which of the technologies do you think is most underrated in the way that it's going to have an impact that entrepreneurs in the room should be thinking about? Definitely AI. And say a little bit more. I've actually been a, an AI pessimist um, up to now. What's the difference between AI and ML is a bit of the sort of the, the kind of continuous redefinition where, you know, ML is the stuff that is actually useful, you know, AI is the stuff that's not useful, and so it's kind of tautologically true that AI is not useful. Um, so, um, so, you know, acknowledging that, but... Uh, in as much as you think there's kind of something more to this whole thing than you know good classifiers or whatever, um, I, I think that has not really been borne out 
today. And the aggregate ARR of the AI sector, I mean, of all the GPT-3 and other kind of, uh, excuse me, the, the DALI and other image generation apps and you know, mid-journey and stable diffusion and, uh, and all these things, and you know, summed to all the revenue of, of you know, the GPT-3 and other LLM users, Jasper and Copy.ai and all those companies. I, I don't know what the like, actual aggregate um, revenue is, but I'm pretty sure it's sub a billion dollars, and maybe it's, I don't know, but may, maybe it's sub 250 million. So it just, like the market is saying, it hasn't really mattered thus far, right? I think that there are lots of things that don't matter and are relatively economically inconsequential until suddenly they're not. It seems to me that we're reaching that tipping point uh, with all of LLMs and, you know, various of the sort of Image generation, video generation, sound generation, speech generation, speech transcription, you know, all this stuff together. Like, I mean, there was the, the, the paper in 2017, Attention is All You Need, from a, a bunch of folks at Google, bringing into the world the transformer uh, model. Um, and it kind of seems that they might have been right, and that maybe transformers are all you need, and the fruits of scaling them up seem to be super high. And so I think 2023 will be actually the year of AI, and I say that as someone who has been on the substantially skeptical side to date. I totally agree, but before I ask the next question, I want to see if there's another question here. Okay, great. Okay, so you have a very unique situation of founding a company with your brother. I'm curious, I think there's a lot of founders in this room, probably many of us have co-founders. I do. Do you think it was easier or harder, and then also you've gone through so many phases and your company is 12 years old. What have you learned in terms of working with other senior leadership and, and founders that make that kind of a different special relationship and things that, that have helped make you successful as a company, as a co-founder group? Um, okay, I'll try to give a very attenuated answer because I don't know, you could probably bore someone for hours uh, and you know, talk about all the co-founder dynamics. But um, so first, building a company is hard uh, and it's obviously hard in the case where things don't go well. Um, and you know, the thing they don't tell you on TV is it's super hard, or they didn't tell me, uh, is that it's super hard uh, even in the cases where it does go well. Greg LeMond, who I think was a Californian, but uh, the, 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 the Greg LeMond quote, you know, it doesn't get easier, you just go faster. Uh, and you know, one builds companies at the kind of, like you hold constant the rate at which you can uh, tolerate problems and you know, everything else is kind of the, uh, the, you know, the variable that moves. And so you're just constantly in this, in this zone of kind of maximum pain. And you know, if, if, if you're below that threshold, then you, know, you take on more stuff and you, know, you, you get yourself right to that peak. And so given that, I've certainly found it extremely helpful um, and stabilizing to have someone else who's in exactly the same boat as you, who's been with you through the whole thing, has, um, you know, a, has full context, but a different perspective. Just it's um, you know, otherwise it 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 ends up. Um, I have tremendous admiration for the people who are uh, doing this solo. And look, there are some phenomenal entrepreneurs who who are doing it solo. I mean, market Facebook um, is is a perfect example. Um, and evidently, empirically, that can work well. But it it seems to me that it'd be you know quite a bit harder. Uh, and so I, I guess. Um, the, you know, my kind of learning from that is, I think, where they exist, those relationships are precious uh, and, uh, and worth really kind of investing in and, uh, and, and fostering. Early on, I think both of us were much more insecure. Not, 
you know, to some crazy extent, but we very much conflated kind of Stripe and our leadership and our own personhood, and you know, those things were all wrapped up together. And I think kind of naturally so, because I mean, it was a thing we had just made, right? And so they weren't even, they didn't have kind of particularly separate identities. But I think something that's been very healthy and that I think if I could speak to six year ago me that I would try to emphasize more is you are not your leadership style. I now think of myself as, I don't know, like when I go into work, I you know, put on a mech suit, not in terms of you know, um, offensive capabilities um, and, um, and smiting people. And, and not literally. Uh, <laughs> right, but just in terms of, if someone said that the mech suit sucks, I would not feel personally attacked. It's just like, oh, I guess you know that that little laser blaster is kind of shitty, you know. You know, I, I had a conversation with one of our leaders last night, and he gave me a long list of things that he thought I should do better, and and I agreed with all of them, and I fully kind of intellectually acknowledged that like such a long list does exist, and you know I could add more things to it. Um, but I, th I think six year ago me would find that a much more uncomfortable experience, whereas now my mindset is much more. He's giving me like excellent upgrade ideas for the mech suit, and so I think. I don't know, that, I, I'd be trying to yell all that to six year ago me. Well, that's an excellent bridge to a question that we are going to be closing uh, many of our sessions with, and so I'm going to ask you that question, which is, if you were to be yelling to your six year ago self, whether it's five, seven, whatever, what would you most tell yourself about like, what knowledge would you impart, not with the fault knowledge of the future, but what would you tell yourself to do differently? More of this, less of that. I mean, there are lots of specific things, but actually I think the meta one is, that from which most of the others follow, uh, is you are not your leadership style. But when you say you were not your leadership style, does that mean that the fact is you always be learning and seeking to make yourself better and not internalize it, but treat it as an external thing that you're a skill set that you're improving? Or Correct. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, you're, you're not... Um, sorry, analogy. Mech suit is probably a bad one. Uh, much, much too, um, you know, pug pugnacious. Yeah, yeah. But I think of a good example of something that, you know, p people do create, but it's not obviously sort of part of their identity. And, you know, maybe you could say their code or something, but people do get very possessive with their code. So anyway, I don't know what the right analogy is. Um, but, 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 but yes, fundamentally that idea that uh, it is, um, it's a, uh, it, well, both it's a separate set of skills, but actually it's also a choice. Uh, and I, I think we kind of fall into these patterns, and again, I include myself, um, uh, where you, know, you find a thing that kind of works, and like now that's you, right? But actually, I mean, it doesn't have to be you. And, and, and I've been very lucky where there's other leaders at Stripe who have a maturity to this and a... Um, uh, hard-won wisdom that you know I've learned a lot from, and I've, and I've even witnessed you know the, the, their evolution and changes, and you know that's been um, you know the, the, there's there's an implicit gauntlet there where it's like man if they can grow and develop that much like shit what am I doing you know so but anyway all all of that kind of bundled together. Yeah. No, look, I think it's excellent advice, and I actually think one of the things you embody is it's not just your mech suit; it's how are you making improvements in your team's mech suits together. Like how are you playing? Like how are you playing the sports together? How do you get your role increased? Partnering well with them, etc. Okay, actually, you're, you're uh, all this philosophical mumbo jumbo. Not that useful. So uh, a more, a more, uh, my philosophical mumbo jumbo. I mean, um, uh, so maybe a more tactical, uh, useful prescription is actually when I meet companies like that have product market fit, and I think when a company gets to that stage. Like pre-product market fit, you should be like scrappy and iterative and uh, you know, just focusing on you know, the, the product exploration in, in the space. Once you've product market fit, I think all the, um, the kind of 
lean startup intuitions don't carry over. I need to become super focused on building a leadership team. Uh, and just like the question is always, who's your leadership team? And you know, how well is it working? And you know, that's, that's a complete inversion from before. So maybe actually six year, six year ago me, I would say focus more on your leadership team. Well, as you can see, uh, why I always love talking with Patrick, and every single event I do, I call him and ask him, hey, will you come on stage with me? So for those of you who were last, last week Master of Scale, you saw that, there will be future. Please give him a hand. That concludes this episode of Gray Matter. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel, and you can read a transcript of this discussion in the content section of our website, graylock.com blog. Both are linked in the show notes. And if you aren't already a subscriber to Gray Matter, you can sign up wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Heather Mack. Thanks for listening.